Did you did you hang out with Andrew for his birthday? No, he's too popular, dude. He took my <laughs> dog and hung out with everyone else. You should. See. Yeah, I, I saw that he took your dog. I saw that he had your dog. Dude, no, let, me, let, let me send you the photos of his Instagram stories of him partying with my dog the whole day, and then like we didn't even get to see him. <laughs> Savage. Um, oh, hey, actually, can we just since we're here, can we just get Andrew to come? Because I have to leave at like my nine forty at the latest. I have like a hard stop. Yeah, Perfect. you're doing real work. Real doing work, a deal. Yeah. Are you buying up a movie studio? I wish. <laughs> actually, those aren't. Pretty expensive these days and don't really want to buy no, you could probably, um, like, i'm pretty sure your company could buy one <laughs> yeah burn through all capital movies. yeah burn through the balance sheet and have like no operating capital sure that sounds good do, do um, what you do best raise raise money andrew is fixing his kettle he has technical issues yeah, yeah i guess right. i could technically make his kettle <laughs> uh, have you guys traveled to india like, like, you know, you know, when you go to a, a relatively remote place, there's like a tea seller and usually he doesn't sell any tea. And when you are here, when, when you happen to pass by, he's very, very zealous. He will just stop you and say all the good things about you. Just that so, so that you just stop at his store for, for, for a cup of tea. Once you stop, he start lighting up the fire and using a matchstick and uh, they start boiling <laughs> the, the water and, uh, and they have this like, you know, hand, or how do you call this thing to, to, to blow the wind into the stove? Maybe maybe that's what Andrew's doing right now. He's going and mining the copper wiring for his cable connections. <laughs> He's literally mining copper and smelting it down into make a wire. There he is. There he is. Good morning, sir. So I, I just, heard that you Where's your kettle? I heard you invited Alex's dog to your birthday party, but you didn't invite Alex. That's kinda that's kinda mean, dude. I look when you put it that way it sounds terrible, but that's not ex at all what happened. <laughs> No, but that is literally what happened, right? <laughs> Listen, maybe yes. Alex's dog is cooler than Alex, okay? Hello, Barbarians, and welcome to the sixth episode of the LLB podcast, Low Level Barbarians from Asia on Asia with debate and discussion on trending topics with our usual host, Man at the High Ground, Dave Chang. Still in a motel. <laughs> still, still in Wisconsin. Uh, soon to do an epic road trip from uh, Salt Lake City to San Francisco. He's going to talk to all the VCs for us. Raise us nice. a nice Sand Hill Road episode. Sure. Uh, sure. I got my sleeveless vest ready. Uh, with us, Jangan, the information super connector. How are you, Jangan? I'm wearing my 12th t shirt, Occupy Mars. Occupy Mars. Very good. Which I, which I bought on Taobao. And with us, the belated birthday boy, the master debater, Andrew G. How was your party last night? I mean, I'm, I'm 30, I'm 34. So, you know, I party like a 34 year old, which means we were back home by midnight. Mm. No. Okay. Where did you go? Honestly, we didn't do much. Like, so I, I took Judah, like Amy brought Judah over. We had a run. We spent like five hours in the forest yesterday, as I would now. And then uh, I had lunch with some friends, uh, which was actually a work meeting that turned into like, you know, fun. And then... Yeah, I went out for dinner with two college friends. Yeah. Very good. The, the, they're my, debating like, friends. Uh, my classmates. My classmates from uni. So basically, they're debating friends. Yeah. <laughs> and and, and Jude. Jude and, right. and Alex's dog. Without <laughs> Alex. Alex is cool. Alex <laughs> yes. sent the representative, so it's all right. Uh, so for our first uh, mini topic, are we really talking about Diablo 2 Resurrected or no? We should definitely <laughs> tackle this. 
<laughs> well, Diablo 2 resurrected us out. The reason why I never went to Harvard, Columbia, or NYU, I played too much Diablo 2. It's come back to destroy my career again. Um, it's back in full first, remastered. It's amazing. Uh, I will be playing it. Dave will be playing it. I don't know about anyone else. If you guys want to play, come and join us. Well, you know, to make it a bit more, uh, a bit more relevant for the podcast, why is Blizzard stock not reflecting social media sentiment for for Diablo 2 Resurrected. Blizzard stock is tanking, which is pretty sad uh, for a stock that's, you know, there's very few gaming stocks you can buy of this size of multi-billion dollar companies, and Blizzard just doesn't seem to be able to get its stock price up, which is kind of sad. You have Tencent. I gave me stock. Yeah. 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 But I mean, uh, at this point, like, uh, I'm just hoping out that some of the private unicorns get out, but it seems like they never will. Valve doesn't seem like they will ever go public. EA. Uh, is the only one left. I think the private unicorns will be acquired before they can go public. And um, and they will probably have the incentive to be acquired if they have like one or two games under their sleeves. So so that's what what happened with yeah. Muntun, right? Uh, the creator of Mobile Legends. I mean, they were looking for a buyer for a long time. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think this is for a topic for another episode. Yeah, go ahead. No, I was going to answer your question, Andrew, why Blizzard stock isn't reflecting um, the release of Diablo 2. I think a large part of that is actually because the way that the game was created, it doesn't have any microtransactions or ancillary income streams aside from the initial purchase. Yeah. Um, so if you look at like sort of like the largest uh, media property, IP properties in the gaming universe um, right now in modern times, they all have some form of monetization. Yeah. They're either actually freemium, like they're just straight up free on the front end, and then you pay for. Uh, cosmetic items. So Fortnite is obviously the, the big um, example here. But actually, uh, I believe to this day, the most popular gaming title still is Grand Theft Auto V, which is now like Grand Theft Auto Online. I think that thing's made like $3 billion in revenue or, or something. And basically what they've been doing is like, they've released the base game, they sold the base game, but then they're also doing the monetization model a lot of freemium games will be selling you like additional cars, additional outfits, additional whatever, right? And none of those elements are present in Diablo 2 Resurrected. So your upside is, it's great press and it's great PR. And I think people get really excited, especially if you're our demographic, because we grew up playing that game. We have really fond memories of it, but I'm not going to buy the game like 50 times, right? I mean, maybe maybe some guy would yeah. buy it 50 times for 50 friends, but you can only make so much money out of me. And then we're essentially mm -hmm. capped out for that particular IP. Yeah. But I mean, I think it's just, it's a work in progress. This, this was a complete recode because the original, they had lost a huge parts of the code base from the original game and they had to like do some crazy voodoo magic to put patch it back together. Um, but I, I think this is just the base test case. Like the beta version was really buggy, but the initial release is really smooth. I think it's just a matter of time before they keep layering on patches with microtransactions and skins, this kind of stuff. But I mean, that's a separate topic. Can I just quickly respond to, to Dave before we move to 1FC? Sure. Just because I think that's really interesting. So okay. I think I think there's two things, right? One is like games are become like there's there's almost a division between games. You've got like the AAA titles like Diablo, uh, Red Dead Redemption that people play for the experience. And then on the other side, games are starting to resemble fashion, right? So, so if you look at the world today, like, you know, NFTs are blowing up mm. and then you have games like uh, Fortnite where mm -hmm. all you're buying is a costume, right? It, it seems to me that it's people who like used to buy Pokemon cards now buy NFTs. People who who used to pay for fashion now buy a skin on a game, 
and and so that's like expanding a little bit yeah. like what the universe of what a game is and so it's almost yeah. like a different like breed like when you when we speak it's almost like they're like more comparable to fashion um and i, I think like slight subtext there like that place is just going to blow up right so i i don't mean to get uh you know uh, gender specific but like bandersnatch was uh not bandersnatch no what, what was uh bridgerton was like the number one most watched tv show in netflix like netflix just released their their to doom uh like analysis of tv shows and so it just seems like as the demographics shift towards like a more male oriented like sport towards a much more mixed category i think this area of like fashion games is just going to blow up over the next five ten years I, I mean, I agree yeah. with you. I think this is sort of like a, a longer conversation we can have about the metaverse and sort of like, you know, that the line blurring between what is your physical life versus like a persistent digital environment. And increasingly, as you spend more time in these uh, environments, then that becomes your life. And so like, yeah, the money you would have spent buying like a, I don't know, Hermes bag in real life, you would have spent buying some really cool like avatar sword or yeah. something in in um, yeah. the game that you're you're participating in but i think that's like a really long yeah. topic of itself that we should probably stay for another time yeah that's yeah. probably a wonderful episode I mean, it's wonderful episode probably and like it's yeah. it's really what 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 dave says so let's let's just move on for now so we're the first first topic being companies that have raised a lot of money um possibly possibly have not lived up to expectations or valuations maybe even. So uh, the first company we're going to be discussing is One Championship, One FC, which is the local MMA media company uh, based out of Singapore here. Very interesting. If you're very, if you want to know the gritty, nitty gritty details, follow the Bloody Elbow Reporting, which is an MMA news outlet that's been tra- you know, tracking the story for quite a few years already. So um, One Championship has been around for about 10 years at this point, And uh, they've raised a lot of money. And I'll take a quote from the most recent article from Bloody Elbow. As of January 1st, 2021, they raised a total of $276 million from for, for the group. The second quote would be, they have also been very successful at spending it. As of the beginning of this year, they have reported accumulated losses of $273 million, right? Um, which is very interesting because the CEO himself has been reporting and like on, on social media on LinkedIn that the company is doing very well. And the most recent was him citing a report uh, from Nielsen saying that this is one of the largest media companies for Southeast Asia for martial arts. And I, I took a, a, a deeper look at it. And essentially what it is, it's based off social media reach. That's what he's citing. If you actually look at the actual data, but more interestingly in the details, right, is that they reported from 2019 to 2020, $400 million or roughly $300 million in revenue. And essentially what happened was they created a Delaware company, sold IP to that company for $400 million. $200 million was in uh, cash, $200 in equity. Um, and so it's just this weird, very weird price transfer move, it seems like. Um, I haven't really been able to brain it. I'll, I'll leave you one last quote before we start uh, discussing this. Over the last three years, one championship has accumulated over $200 million in losses at a burn rate of almost $70 million a year. At this rate, one championship would be expected to have burned through the remaining cash by early next year. So, guys, what what is going on, and what's going to happen with one FC? I can start. I have a, I have a lot to say about this. <laughs> All right, go for a day. Yeah, I mean, I th- so just just a quick um, aside. So, just to be clear about what you were talking about, Alex. So, they basically sold IP to themselves and booked it as revenue. And just to also be just to clarify as well. The $200 million in cash based off the reporting that I've seen 
they haven't even received it yet. So it's just purely booked revenue. It, it, there's no actual transaction. So it, it basically, it, it's nothing. It's it's all it's all fluff. Well, can, well, can I can I also say that um, for the early few years that they had reported revenue, uh, in the revenue they had this thing called called barter, right? Yeah. And barter essentially was. Um, like, you know, when you do trade marketing, like I get the value instead of paying cash. So they would book that as revenue. Yeah. And then in the past few years, they recently moved that to broadcasting. And they don't tell you the breakdown of percentage of revenue, right? So you don't actually know of the broadcasting revenue, which is now called bar, which is from barter. Like you don't know if there's actually any real revenue from that. And that's the only revenue that has been growing. Everything else has tanked from COVID times on the top line numbers. So uh, just, just also to add more nuance that, you know, from the, price transfer to the revenue. Yeah. I mean, I think there's a, there's a lot of things you could say about about this particular company. I think there's a lot of different angles. I'm, um, I, I'm yeah. going to go through all of them and I'll, I'll try to keep each one as succinct as I can. So just from like a, like a business fundamental operations point of view, there's some... If you look at their business, right, they've essentially spent, yeah, as you said, 300 million and they're booking, I think last year, their group income was like, I think maybe... 48 if you don't include that one-off transfer uh pricing that you have and what's actually super interesting right is like so you can make an argument that because it's a sporting event and then because of obviously the covid health situation um we have a decreased uh a deep sorry depressed impact on their overall uh performance but actually that's not objectively that's not true because you have a lot of um, analogies in western sports so to give you an example right so uh, the NFL recently renewed their contract with the major broadcasters and uh, ESPN. So that contract is an 11-year contract, and it's worth 110 billion US dollars, which is actually double what the previous contract renewal was. Right? If you look at one FC's um, broadcasting revenue, it's only grown like I think uh, six or seven million sing dollars year over year, and that's including that weird uh, barter trade mechanic that Alex was referring to. So what that really says to me is like, if you think about it, there's really no demand for this product or the demand for this product among their core customer is quite low. And when I say core customer, I'm not talking about like you and I as viewers or as audience members, I'm talking about the people that they actually sell this to, which is the TV stations and broadcasters because they're the ones that actually monetize this thing, right? So I think Chatri had a really interesting quote where he basically said something along the lines like all our metrics are trending in the right direction i'm sure that given time we will actually grow into uh the multi-billion dollar business that we always were meant to be and i think that's actually fundamentally true right because if you think about it this way like over a long enough time period they will be the only um they are and they will probably continue to be the only dominant mixed martial arts promotion in the region however at that point what we're really talking about is we're talking about we're waiting for like our markets that we that they operate in to develop and mature to a rate where they can actually support that kind of valuation right it's not so much the what i'm saying is like there's a natural cap based off the maturity of the region that we operate in right so that's from like an operational uh point of view i think um, from just like more like a like a philosophical or a fundamental point of view, it's a really interesting business because they've actually chosen to operate in sort of like the most zero sum game there is, which is their media company, their content company. So they compete against every other entertainment class for your time, um, and that sort of goes into what we're talking about with like video games. So not only do they compete against 
um, UFC, which is obviously competitive there, but we compete against uh, TV, against video games, against books, against podcasting. And that's an increasingly um, both fragmented and competitive space, right? There's so much content and good quality content being put out that you really have to be best in class to, to really uh, make a name for yourself. And I think that is that therein is sort of where another fundamental weakness and maybe their greatest fundamental weakness lies is they are branding themselves as a regional MMA promotion. So they're like very in their marketing materials, they're all very gun ho and heavy about being Asia centric, Asia first, Asian values in their Asian promotion. That's very clear in their marketing and their branding. But uh, at the same point, uh, and then this is unfortunate to say, but you know, when it comes to sports, what people really care about when they watch sports, they want to watch the best. They want to watch the best people compete um, against each other. That's why you have uh, like the um, Arsenal, right? Arsenal is the most popular, or um, Barcelona, whatever. The top football leagues are like, even though you have local leagues, those like Euro Cup leagues are still the most popular ones because those are the best teams. And I think that uh, dynamic exists in the UFC, 1FC dynamic as well, right? So even if they are a Asian promotion, ultimately at the end of the day, what people care about is they want to watch the best fighters. And whether they're the best or not, it doesn't actually matter because the perception is that the UFC has the best fighters and they're never going to do a cross promotion competition. It's never going to happen, right? So for basically the foreseeable future, they're sort of like a second tier relegated promotion that's really sort of like trying to I believe monetize or capitalize on like this like nationalistic spirit, uh, but ultimately that only gets you so far when it comes to sporting content. Um, and then I think the, the the last point I want to make before I let someone else go, and I think this is super interesting, is if you look at who led their last three rounds, it's been Sequoia every single time. And so this actually brings up another question about sort of like what are their investors doing and what are what are their mindsets? So to be clear, right. Sequoia has a track record of doing this. They are known for investing in subsequent rounds. They, they make a assumption or they make a bet and they typically uh, push their chips in several times over the course of, um, uh, of the relationship with that company. And sometimes, I mean, it depends on the company, right? If you're doing that for like, say like WhatsApp or SpaceX, you look really, really smart. Um, but sometimes that doesn't go uh, as well for you. So what I'm trying to say is, I think, yes, basically, if Chatri were given, let's, or let's say 1FC, let's give like, say, maybe like 10 to 15 year runway for sort of our markets to mature enough where you could support like these billion dollar broadcasting rights and they had enough runway to actually make in a Sequoia or whoever was actually willing to fund them for, for that amount of time, then yeah, I guess that, you know, on, on, on like a purely technical level, that is true. Um, but, you know, I think this move that they've made to transfer the IP rights to a U.S. Delaware company, to me, that's sort of like indicative that they're sort of looking into a SPAC or IPO move. And I don't think that that uh, move will be very well received in the U.S. based off what, what their numbers and what their performance is. Sure. I have a few points. So uh, so a few years ago, uh, I think even before the, the last two rounds, I think some early rounds, um, a friend of mine went into one of their pitching sessions, and uh, I do remember back then uh, the pitch is that we have 2 billion potential viewers. And of course, I mean, um, it went into argument of what potential viewers actually mean. Mm-hmm. But, uh, but, but I think, um, I think, I think, I think, as you rightly point out, um, Dave, so um, I 
don't think that the market in Southeast Asia or the market in Asia in general is that big. So I have a bunch of friends in China who are diehard fans of MMA and um, and they all follow UFC. And when Dana White went to China and, uh, and, and they followed, I mean, all the news about Dana White, about the fighters they signed up in China, and, uh, and and one FC went to China as well, and uh, they could only sign up sort of um, fa- fairly mediocre fighters for the uh, for the tour. And of course, they could they, they could invite the top ones for performance, whatever. But uh, but 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 for the serious tour, um, this, the, I mean, the good fighters want to go to UFC, and that's for sure. And uh, yeah. and people who know Dana White would, would say that I mean, compared to Compared to him, uh, Ch- and is no match. I mean, in terms of aggressiveness, in terms of I mean, I wouldn't say business acumen, but uh, but 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 that guy is uh, is a beast. Yeah. So sorry. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. And actually, I, I missed this point out, but it's only add on to it. So actually, UFC's um, financials are public because UFC is part of William Morris Endeavor, and they just yeah. IPO'd in March of this year. So their financials are actually public. Um, and to your point, Jangan, Donna White is a business monster. Like I have like the headline stats uh, for UFC. Uh, I think they did like a billion dollars in in revenue in 2020, and they are like gross margins are like 49. percent So they're like EBIT is like 490 million US dollars on like a billion dollars of revenue, which is incredibly impressive. Yeah, I mean, I, my my question would be like then how how did Dana White go about early days? doing that and i think that would have been the right blueprint like if, if the market size is too small right to me the more smart thing to do is build i mean it, it's the baseline of, of good quality would be good fighters you have to really invest a lot in building high quality fighters first before you could even create the content right and then it's like how do you find what's profitable and then you have your natural market size that's profitable and then it also another way i mean if you want to do southeast asia because it's small right the other way is that why didn't they just focus more like on china then you know if, if that's the bigger market and that's where where, where the, the diehard fans are right so yeah. these, these are some questions i, I would that come to mind so when you, when you I, i'm just gonna this. take a, a quick stab at this right like i think i'm i'm hesitant to say too much about this topic for two reasons one is i think i look there's there's like bad luck and then there's also bad strategy and there's bad execution and then there's actually just trying really hard in something that maybe is a bit new where nobody's really done uh, too much right and so I want to give respect to entrepreneurs who try to do something different and I think like Chatri is a great storyteller who's who's got his heart set on this route and he's trying out different things right obviously there's a bit of uh, of work to be done um and so like let, let, let's take a step back here first of all ufc isn't exactly a, a, an ancient brand right 30 years ago nobody really watched mma uh, boxing was was everything and mma had to be created from you know the remnants of gracie bjj a Brazilian school and what is, you know, Muay Thai and a bunch of other sports thrown in, right? And and this idea of like people just like bare knuckle boxing or like using all of their limbs and head and every other parts of their body was just new at that time. And they were considered like a weird underground sport for a while. Today, UFC is as respectable as, as boxing, right? I think what happened was more people saw the opportunity that there was this cake this cake is going to grow and it's a new cake you can keep building on that cake and build like like the idea of mma hasn't fully evolved yet it's still developing what exactly is mma where does it uh, get involved right and i think chatri saw an opportunity to get in there i mean if you guys know khabib is also launching eagle fighting championship right so it seems like there's space I, and to be honest <laughs> he's the greatest fighter mma has ever seen 
right? And if he says, I'm going to split out from Dana and start my own thing, now, whether or not he gets the backing and gets to execute and has the business ability to do that, you know, that's a separate topic. But the point is, it's a very nascent spot. Like Dana had the ability to bring in lots of people, create a whole uh, uh, thing out of it, right? Now, there's two, a couple of very interesting things here. Like number one, why is Sequoia behind them, right? Uh, and then number two is, does the business model even make sense? Like, let's tackle that. Now, Sequoia, uh, now, first of all, with VC, the way you get returns is by doubling down on your investments when you see, like, trajectory is going to look good, right? You want to be 10 or 15% of a company that's going to be large as opposed to keep diluted until you're a single-digit percentage. And obviously, like, I'm not going to, uh, like, if, if Sequoia sees something in him, it can't just be that he's a great storyteller. There must be something behind that. My theory is is a couple of things. Number one is, number one is on this idea of localization. Um, I think that, that Southeast Asia has its own specialties. Muay Thai is massive here, right? And people do have a bit of loyalty to fighters from a certain region. I think what he's trying to do with 1FC is bring like a trans-regional Southeast Asian identity of fighters who are primarily like standing uh, as opposed to grappling fighters and then bring them onto like this larger point, right? Um, He's also been pretty successful at getting a lot of UFC fighters to jump over to one FC, right? You had to, like there was some shocks, like Demetrius Johnson was shocked. Uh, I think I, I don't know if Eddie Alvarez is still in one FC, but like you know he's got a couple of big name fighters to jump from UFC to one FC, um, and and in that sense has been fairly successful in trying to build this sort of brand. Now the runway is long, like to be able to build something like this and and make sure it it gets onto everybody's uh, views. That's a bit hard. I think what they tried to do and why they also got Sequoia in, and this is the second point, is that they tried to build this like multimedia franchise that was more than just uh, uh, boxing. I don't know where that is, but this was what I heard in market like a couple of years back. Like it was going to be an app where you get to, you know, look at, at different kinds of sports data and create like a one-stop shop for, for all your different sporting Southeast Asian or Asian needs. Uh, I don't know where they are on that story of where the app is, but that clearly didn't happen. On this topic of like barters and cash, right? The problem is this, when you're new, nobody wants to give you sponsorship money and it's going to be really, really hard to justify like selling uh, ad space. It takes a while to pick up there. So in the beginning, everyone just gives it for free, right? But what they do with giving it for free is they ask you to give something in return and, and it's typically some kind of in-kind. Some of that stuff is really valuable. Like when one came to uh, the company that I used to work at, like we ended up giving them, I think, vouchers or some kind of promotional stuff that they could give out to their spaces in return for getting some kind of ad space. Um, so they were doing it because I was reluctant to spend at that time on, on a very new property. This was like four years ago. Um and and so that's going to happen for a while uh, as people figure out, you know, are, are some of the stats true? Do women really watch this show? Or is it just like men, you know, and, and like get a lot of the numbers down? Uh, but at some point, they need to convert the button number into the actual cash, right? Because, you know, promotional vouchers don't get you anything. Uh, the test is whether you can switch fast enough. And I think they're struggling a bit there in this last two years. Um, I hope they get out of it. I hope they figure it out. You know, the, the world could use a bit more of like some new sports media giants. Um and uh, but I'm I'm not sure if if they're just trying to repeat something that's already worked and then doing it better, or they're actually inventing something new. Well, that's an interesting. Okay, so yeah, I think it's a couple of points. I'm not saying these things aren't aren't value judgments against the entrepreneur, um, right? I don't think anything that we say is on on this podcast on the show is meant in that no. way. But I just for me, it's really a question of uh, yes. Why would like why would you build 
your business in this way, right? I think maybe that's that's a better that's a better question. And to me, this this kind of like sort of sort of falls into this this paradigm of like a fake it till you make it type thing, right? I mean, we we're in the middle in the U.S. right now of a Theranos trial with Elizabeth Holmes, and to a certain extent, this is this is very similar, right? In the sense that you know she she for years has said, "Hey, I have." Um, this great revolutionary product, uh, blah, 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 blah. But at the end of the day, it was all kabuki, right? And then and similar, right? You have a charismatic founder, you have a product that on the surface, if you look at sort of like the, the you know, surface level um, metrics on like, you know, views or followers or whatever, right? I'm sure it looks great. But then like, what are the fundamentals that are really, um, you know, are underneath, right? If you look behind the hood and sort of, is this the sort of, um, business or is this a sort of model that we as people in the ecosystem should encourage or is this something that we should be like well look you know uh, there are certain games that are being played here and let's just all be honest about what is that we're that's happening here and call things out for what it is that's that's my point i think my point my point here is that uh, uh yeah uh david pointed out that some, some of the similarities between theranos and, uh, and, and my take about theranos is always I mean, I'm not sure what really went behind. I've I've, I've read the book, but uh, but 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 nobody could really get into what the duo or Homos was thinking back then, right? Um, and initially, I mean, fake it until you make it. Is, is, I mean, it's it's the mantra that many entrepreneurs take, right? But uh, at at which stage that uh, that that it turns into what we call fraud, um, um, knowing that the product wouldn't work, or still having a faith that product not work uh, is going to work, or, or knowing for sure that it's not going to work, mm. but you are going to continue to put a facade saying that okay, I, I'm going to make it, I'm going to make it. Um, I think I think one thing to, to to dig into it is probably the the, the psychological effects of things. Um, you guys probably uh, looked at um, uh, the rock traders, right? I mean, the, the traders who have lost lots of money uh, for the bank for the banks that were. They're working for, and what do they do next? They always try to take riskier bets to try to recover that. So, so, so yeah. I think psychologically, for you to come out and say that, look, I screwed, um, it didn't work. Uh, uh, sorry to my board, sorry to my investors, sorry to the public. I think that's a very, very hard thing to do. I mean, I, I don't know if I would be able to do it in that situation. And what I would, yeah. I mean, putting putting up a, a, a sort of brave front when things are working against you. It's probably easier than just uh, telling the world that, look, guys, it's not going to work out. That's a very, very good point. And I think there's only a few stories of entrepreneurs that I know that have done this. Like the one that comes to mind was Justin Kahn with Atrium. He took over $100 million. I don't think he lost all of it, but he lost a big portion of it. But he returned the remaining balance. But that, that's, like you said, probably massively hard to do. Um, and any final comments before we move on? You look at, um, I, I mean, I'm not sure if you guys have been following the, the post that Chattery has done on LinkedIn. I mean, uh, enormously popular. I and mean, every time he posts yeah. something, like hundreds of likes, hundreds of comments. Yeah. Uh, but I do Very remember popular. about, a, yeah, a few months ago, about a year ago, and uh, he posted something saying that the quickest $100 million raised from, and, uh, and, and he named Sequoia. He tagged, I think, the some of the partners of Sequoia India best here. And he said he went for dinner. I think I think along the along the lines of uh, he went for dinner, and uh, they had a, like very good chat, and uh, they promised like a hundred millions to him, etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera. And, uh, and 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 the funny thing is that that post, as usual, got like hundreds of likes, hundreds of comments, and uh, people saying that this is really inspirational, and no <clears throat> no response from the the Sequoia partners who attacked, 
and it <laughs> felt to me, it felt to me that uh, it, it's it's like a public public statement saying that hey, <laughs> hey, dude, where's the hundred million dollars you have promised to me? But of course, I'm not going yeah, to dig yeah. into the details because uh, I don't know what was promised. Yeah, so I think it remains to be seen what will happen at One FC. You know, Andrew has an interesting narrative. Um, there clearly is a lot of work to be done. Um, so shall we move on to to the next topic? Sure, sure. Okay. Let's go. Mm. Okay, okay. It's enough time here. All right. So, second second topic will be uh, insert tech in Southeast Asia. Um, I think I'm going to reference uh, Jangan's article from Momentum Works. I don't know who wrote this article on CXA, right? Um, which is a, I guess you could say it's a kind of insert tech company. They had a brokerage arm, but it's more of a SaaS company that sells products to corporates in terms of uh, HR, HR benefits, right? And the article goes on to outline that, you know, CXA group, uh, they had to, in the past year, lay off a significant amount of their employees. Um, you know, they ha- they've raised over $58 million. They have th- over 300 staff in Singapore. Uh, however, be- you know, despite all of this traction, uh, they had the layoffs and they also sold their brokerage arm, which, you know, for an insurance type business seems a bit of a, of a red flag. They sold their brokerage arm to Pacific Prime and they're focusing as a SaaS business. Um, but what, what I wanted to set up for... Insertech, because I, I this year I made my first angel investment in, in, in technically an Insertech company. Uh, shout out to Oyen. If you have pets and want to be insured, um, I, I've been talking at length for a long time with the founder Kevin Hung, and uh, you know we had a few topics that I think were very interesting that could help set up this topic. Is that if you're looking at Insertech in the region, you know you really want to be looking at the customers and what are the trends and behaviors that are creating opportunities for innovation and product, right? And and as a user myself of insurance in the region. It's just very painfully hard to understand it. It's very hard to engage with it. The, the user experience is when you get insurance, there's really no good technological product solution for it. And then the question is, you know, what is your way, like what kind of behavior can you see that could give you a nice niche? And um, what I decided on and what Kevin decided on was that the pets and pets owners was an untapped market. They had products that had no traction, but as a pet owner myself, I really had this pain point. So it's like looking at the customer trends and behaviors. Secondly, like when you're looking at this, you want to look at distribution. You know, does the embedded model actually work or do customers prefer dealing with agents or going direct still, right? And my take on that is that because the user experience is so bad, and these older insurance companies have a hard time deploying technological solutions or good product that there's plenty of room. Like, you know, forget the, you know, AI, forget the machine learning, all this kind of nonsense that people will tell you. It's all nonsense for this region specifically because there's so much work to be done just adding this very good layer that, that, that these big companies are moving very slowly about, right? So, and I think once you do that, that really gives you a leverage multiplier effect for distribution where you don't need this kind of agent model. Right. Uh, lastly, I think the most critical part, which I would listen to and understand people's criticisms of InsurTech would be regulation. You know, will digital insurance licenses follow digital banking licenses? Like, you know, and like Andrew mentioned last episode, they are rolling out digital banking licenses end of this year. The question is, you know, how will the national banks start looking at insurance uh, licenses as well? Because most of the regional players who are embedded in Trench, they got those licenses decades and decades ago, have been able to build monopolies. So the question is, you know, will they be distributing for more newer innovative players? And I think, you know, that's going to be the question, you know, will it be a big 10 or still going to be very fragmented? And if you want to be a regional player, how do you go about doing that? Do you go about doing it with partnering with other people with licenses then? Um, is it possible to get your own license? Uh, so essentially the way I look at it, you know, a tech layer will widen the funnel and create the stickiness in this old industry. 
And I am quite bullish on the space. If you have someone who's a domain expert who can navigate the, the regula you know, regulations in their own market and then eventually think about how to do regional expansion in other categories. And uh, the way I would do it is very bottom up, create the value and the stickiness in the product first, build a, a brand moat around that. And then after that, it starts to make sense looking at other categories once you have a very profitable niche. And I don't know what happened with CXA, but like if you're doing insurance, you don't need many premiums. You need like a few thousand premiums just to be profitable in itself. Right. And so what happened with OEN is that, you know, within the first months of launching, they were able to sell more policies than the, the product owner had done in the past few years. So there's so much room to grow and innovate here. And that's that's my take on it. So um, what, what do you guys think about Insertech? I know Jangan and Andrew have a lot to say, maybe some criticisms or maybe some insights. I, think I, would let I, wanna, I, wanna, I wanna hear you, Jangan. Go for it, Andrew. With the, your crystal ball. Because he's older than us, right? So he goes first. <laughs> In Asian societies, we give respect yeah, yeah, to others. Yeah. Please, Jamal, tell us your I, views. <laughs> okay, I, I'm three years older than you, which means that I I, I go home at <laughs> ten thirty after parties. You party? <laughs> Of course, yeah, he Jagan parties, dude. Oh wow, Jagan, I gotta see this. Now it fits very nicely with the government policy here, which 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 stops uh, any establishment from selling alcohol at ten thirty. So it just just very nicely fit. Perfect for yes, I agree. Yep, yep, yep. Um, I, I don't remember who wrote that CX article on our blog. I mean, so 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 basically, the blog is harsh, it, <laughs> it's uh, it's. I mean, it's, it's a team effort, right? So, 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 some members of the team said, that, "Okay, I have a topic I want to talk about," and uh, they just write it. Sometimes we, we we discuss because, I mean, some of the topics um, that 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 the other team members might know deeper inside stories. So, so that we said, "Okay, maybe it's too harsh on on or whatever." So, 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 CSA is an interesting story, right? I mean, it sort of started um, by this benefits and whatever, 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 and uh, but essentially, it's a it's a brokerage business. It has a SaaS business. But it's um it's, it's fairly small. Um, uh, what what I, I found interesting was uh, first is their cost structure, and uh, I think they were burning about three million dollars uh, per month in Singapore alone. They have like two hundred fifty or uh, I I don't know I can't remember the headcount, but very very big headcount in Singapore. So so that that part was burning lots of money, and of course the growth trajectory uh, in this region was not as fast as, uh, as as the founder and investors initially hoped. Uh, interestingly, they had a business in China. I think they still do have a business in China. I'm not sure if I've sold it recently. But that business was going well because, um, because you have lots of MNCs in China, which basically do not trust local brokers. So, 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 so they managed to sell into that market and it was doing really, really well. Um, but uh, but headquarters, I mean, the cost was was super high. And I was talking to one investor who was complaining that um, that the whole team went to Maldives for the annual party, and uh, and uh, and for for a very very long long time they didn't have a CFO. So 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 I think one of the sort of complaints from investors is that um, for a founder who is um, who's experienced, I think it's just like late 50s, early 60s or something like that. So very experienced, should not have made this fundamental mistake of managing cash flow. Um, maybe the founder was too optimistic as, as many of the young founders uh, would be, but uh, but that mistake was uh, was not uh, for the type of someone who is very experienced in a corporate setting. And uh, mm -hmm. and I think I think some, some friends around me sort of um, group her in the same category as Chattery of one championship. Ooh. Because because they they always go and tell their like you no know, childhood stories. I grew up in, sure. in, in a, in a yeah. poor neighborhood, uh, uh, 
tough like childhood and etc 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 then this is how i made myself uh very inspiring yeah. um but um but i think many people around me have grown um quite skeptical about this kind of stories especially when they're told by when they are told by the founder themselves i mean if it's told it's told by other parties like uh, some of the politicians would do and uh, and uh, that will probably <laughs> make it more more convincing but for the business model per se um i th- <sighs> I think we we have team members who are very experienced in insurance uh, for uh, with regulator and and and, uh, and and manufacturer experience. We're doing some consulting projects on insuretech as well. Um, the business has huge potential. I mean, if you look look across the region, I mean, the insurance penetration you can see the numbers. I mean, whether it's I mean, we talk about live whether it's like three percent, five percent in in large countries like Vietnam, Indonesia, it's very small. So there's huge room for growth, and uh, lots of the um, the general insurance products are not sort of proli- uh, proliferated many people do not have insurance for many things so 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 definitely the potential is huge now the question is that how do you tap into the market to build a business model that's attractive and that's also sustainable so so if you look at um, many of the models being built are essentially two, i mean three parts right i mean first is the the marketplaces i mean the ones which um, which aggregate um uh, demand and uh, 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 yeah so so basically you put products from different insurance companies and uh, and people can come and pick and choose a really good search or whatever um so so this is one business model and i think i think many of the prominent insurance and uh, tech uh startups which have raised money are in that category and the second is the um this part mm. of the ecosystem right i mean so um so if you look at some of the products rolled out by grab for example so uh, i think i think for the drivers uh, they, they get health and health insurance uh, on a per trip basis which uh, which many of the drivers didn't have insurance in the first place so 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 these are typically done by manufacturers directly or by the ecosystem and the second is um and also the third is um what uh, weju the, fo- the the former CTO grab and uh, has been doing um which is kind of like a uh, how how would I describe his business? He started as a a, a Zhongang copycat. Zhongang is a um, is a business in China which was co-founded by Jack Ma, Pony Ma, and Minja Ma, the three Mars, which Ma Ma Ma, yeah Ma Ma Ma, yes. And yeah. uh, they were at the helms of companies like Alibaba, Tencent, and Ping An. Uh, and uh, and mm. Zhongang initially started with uh, you know selling lots of different insurance products, micro insurance products on these platforms because they have huge distribution they have captive audience yeah. but somehow i mean for whatever reason i haven't i haven't investigated in detail yet but that business model didn't quite work out for them so they have transitioned into more of a b2b player to help insurance yeah. companies build systems and um, i do know a few customers of them they have very very good words about them so so basically very flexible mm-hmm. very experienced and very fast so 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 yeah so 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 we has this business model i think he has raised a, a bit of money and he's helping sort of insurance companies solve the um solve the, the technical problems distribution and uh, and underwriting and, and basically creating this layer that that everybody can tap yeah. into uh, yeah. how that will work out uh, in the competition of i mean Zhongai in southeast asia and uh, a few other companies we, we will have to see yeah, I have one comment about something that you said, and I, I, yeah. I, I think this came out of my conversation with Kevin yesterday is that if yeah. you really want to look at if you're building or if investing in the space, another way to look at it is that how many, you know, big insurance companies 
have been innovating on the products, like how many products, how many new products are they innovating or launching every year? And you will see that it hasn't changed at all pretty much for the year. So there, there's mm. there's so much room to, you know, use data, use very, we're not even talking deep tech, just very basic things to find out, you know, what, what market's being underserved and uh, how could you innovate or even change the existing products itself, right? So there, there's so much room for that. Of course, the challenge of that is, you know, you need to be working with someone who has the license and the underwriting capabilities, which, which is a little bit trickier, right? But, but you know, of course, um, I think a few companies that we know have probably done this, you know, even even the more infamous ones like Nova, they, they partnered with the right institutions and they, they had, you know, be able to get the right financers from from China and the stuff, but so there there are possibilities I think to to do that. But you know, just really just look at the products and what's coming out of these companies, and that's that's the the lunch that you could take from them. Yeah, I think insurance companies are struggling to innovate as well, right? I mean, um, I, I I so for instance FWD, which is yeah. going for IPO, uh, they have been trying to innovate, but but historically the problem is that we try to build an insurance business. I mean, you have all these legacy functions which you, yeah. which you need to put in. And for these functions, you can only hire people from the industry. And and, and of course, we, we hire like 150 people from the industry. They bring a baggage. Yeah. They will tell you that, okay, this can't yeah. be done, that can't be done, et cetera, et cetera. It's, yeah. it's very difficult from um, building a pure tech business where, where people just, um, just, just, just try an error. Yeah. So, so that's a challenge. And, and the second point is that well, when you try to work with insurance companies, uh, what exactly is the pain point? The pain point is that they are, they are slow or what? Uh, wait, work, uh, work. You mean as which, which, which uh, party working with the customer or or what? You mentioned that new platforms have to work with uh, whoever who has the license, and uh, I thought yeah, that's a, yes, yeah. that's a rational approach, right? Because um, because for you to yeah. test the system and for it to correct. work, for it to get traction, to get money, and yeah. uh, you don't want to spend your your initial capital to acquire a license. Yeah, but but typically in order to do that, you have to be a domain expert. So right. So when you look at the founding team, it, it really helps that they they've done the business. With their family businesses, or they've just been mm. in insurance for a long time, they know all the CEOs. Mm. You really like mm. the sales cycles are very different. It's very clicky across the region, and the re the few regional players, and when I say regional, it's typically two or three countries because it's hard to really entrench yourself in other markets outside your own home territory. So it, mm. that's the kind of like expertise you would need. Um, yeah. Cool. Yeah, I, I mean, Andrew? lots to say here. I'm I'm super bullish about this uh, this whole segment, right? Like, uh, first of all. Okay, before we even start, shout out to the two companies that got Series A's in this last month in, in Southeast Asia. Policy Street with like 8 or 9 million USD, I don't know. So Winnie, Steam, yes. awesome, well done. Yeah, well, 25 million, million stuff. Uh, I think LifePal did 9 million in Indonesia in this last month. So it's definitely heating up, uh, at least in the Series A space and, and more to come, right? Um, I think it should, yeah. Uh, quickly though. Uh, you should give a shout out to the a local the local investor Masing Group, a Malaysian like family business. It's their first investment. No, no, no. Masing Masing's team has a, a little VC team going on. They've actually made a couple of investments. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. No, the kids are the kids are definitely okay. looking at uh, finding ways to invest family money in tech, which is pretty cool. It's I think that's happening across the region. A topic for another podcast. Um, yeah. Um, but yeah, so back to this. So I, I think, you know, one step back, insurance is one of those areas where I think you can actually hit the Venn diagram of making a positive benefit in the world and making a ton of money, right? It's one of the few industries where you can have 100 plus percentage of, of margins. And number two is like, if you think about, you know, a lot of people who want to get healthcare just can't afford it. A lot of people who, uh, in some countries where car insurance, for example, is not mandated, like Indonesia, if you total your car, you're basically screwed. Right? You, you just have to figure out how to get yourself a new car. And so 
No, it's not mandated in Is Indonesia. it not mandated? It's crazy. Really? That's, yeah, it is crazy. That's it's crazy. crazy. And it's, it's one of the really hard reasons for why some of these startups are struggling. Because if it's not mandated, how do you even sell to people, right? Um, but, but, but so the point that I'm trying to make is like, you know, I think if you provide insurance, you make a ton of money and you also are able to protect people and, and save people cash and help them have better lives. Right. So if you do it right, game changer. Now, in terms of like innovation, let, like, let's be honest, like the insurance product hasn't changed. You figure out a probability density function for certain use cases. You figure out how much to price that and then you give it to people. Right. Um, now how does, so, so there's really two places to innovate. The first is product innovation which is either and and product innovation specifically means two things one you make the premiums cheaper by using better data right uh, or two you start to target an ignored segment so let me let me explain what those means like making it cheaper with data yeah. means in the past you didn't have data therefore you had to price an average across a big group now with data you get to price a small group so examples of that root yeah. in in the US you know, you have a, a telemetry device in your car, or now you can even use your smartphone. That telemetry device records the speed of your car, your driving style, etc. compares it to a group of people, and then your premiums get reduced if you're a safe driver. Because if you're a safe driver, why should you pay as much as everyone else? So that's really fucking smart. Because now, if you're a safe driver, you're incentivized to be safer and then pay lower premiums, and therefore you reduce and save money, right? I, I think I... Can I, can I give a... Can I give a quick shout out that like that that is a real pain point for Southeast yeah. Asia. I, I know a lot of big like asset heavy car rental companies who are they they in dire they need this telemetric type of information to be built into the insurance models to lower the premiums and that would be a yeah. huge thing. I mean to and, and also like think about it. if you're doing it for car rental companies you can you know with verified credentials you can pass on information from an individual which is also like a white space right because now they don't know who's driving so they've got to buy group insurance for the whole rental car as opposed to adjusting rates by people yeah so cra crazy ideas but very cool yeah. so so but that's just the beginning right like there there is a um a, a, an old school traditional insurance company in Singapore, I forget which one, who's using uh, smart watch or smart band data to reduce your health premiums. So if you work out, if you uh, you know have an active lifestyle, you actually reduce your health premiums, which is incredible. So you you get to use all these new data sources. To mm. uh, I mean, David Friedberg's company, Weather Bill, was based off this. Not sorry, not good for Dave. Not good for Dave. Yeah, which not Dave? Dave, Dave Chang. Dave. He just had Chipotle for, for, for yeah. dinner or lunch. Maybe, maybe Chipotle well, can subsidize for, for dinner. I'm in, I'm in great shape. <laughs> no. Sorry, sorry no, Andrew. Minnesota food's really getting to you, Dave. That's awesome. Um, um, and, and, and like, uh, I can't remember what I was saying. So, so smartwatch data, smartwatch data, improving health outcomes. And, and there's also like just, then the second piece is like completely ignored segments, which can sometimes come from the same piece. So if you look at like Weather Bill or the Climate Corporation, like David Friedberg's company, it's basically insurance. They figured out that, hey, rain affects enough businesses. If we, we can find a way to monetize rain, uh, then we can make some money. And they realized, hey, actually, agricultural producers are very affected by climate change and the change of seasons. Let's find a way to ensure that. And then they got into this whole space of like agricultural insurance and did way better than anyone else using data, right? So so that's like, yeah. Yeah. It's, and th there's no one looking that in the region from a, there is, like a there climate is. change perspective for Southeast Asia, right? That's probably that's probably huge. Yeah. So 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 this space is is heating up like mad in Southeast Asia. So so the first piece is like you know product innovation. 
Now, it's not as important yet because there's a bigger problem to be solved with insurance. And that's why you're not seeing product innovation happening at a fast pace in emerging markets yet, right? Because distribution hasn't been cracked. As long as insurance rates are low, it means like solve distribution first before you're doing all the funky stuff, right? So what do I mean by that? Um, mm. there's, there's really only three ways to sell insurance, right? The first is you get an agent and the agent goes out and sells it for you. The second is you try to create some kind of a direct centra- central repository where they buy it from. And the third is you sell it in tandem with another product. That's what's called associate sales, right? Now, surprisingly, what's happening yeah. in Southeast Asia is D2C, everyone who's starting out saying they can do D2C ends up doing associate sales, right? What do I, what do I mean by that? So, for, so be, because D2C is hard, right? Like if you think about insurance, no one looks for insurance. Like insurance is something you think about when shit happens to you. And especially if you're trying to create something new, like say, oh, telemetric data car or like agricultural climate science affecting your crops. If you're a smallholder farmer in Indonesia, you're like, dude, I have enough shit to pay, right? My kids don't even go to school yet. Can you please calm down on this stuff, right? The bigger corporations get insured, right? And so there, there's like a B2B space that can be done. But then like with smallholders, which is the majority of Southeast Asia, that's really hard. And and so like I'm I like this insurance space is huge. So cracking the distribution cycle is tough, right? So what is the associate sales model? So let's look at Indonesia, for example. You've got, you know, Pasapolis, which is pretty much built off Policy Bazaar in Indonesia. Uh, or in Malaysia, you've got Policy Street. Uh, you've got Senang Insurance that's trying to do the same stuff. Basically, this idea that you can create a massive platform, have everybody's insurance, and then you sell that. Like, basically, a marketplace of insurance. Fundamental issue with these is nobody looks for insurance, right? So it's not like e-commerce where someone thinks about a phone and then comes to your site. Insurance, like, you have to, have to actively create intent, which takes a lot of money, which means your CAC is really high. Um, and so, so that's why a lot of them end up doing associate sales. And how do they do that? So if you look at Koala in Indonesia, they've got a very successful model of selling on the back end of products. So if you buy a bus ticket on any platform in Malaysia, catch that bus, red bus, there's a little like 20 cents additional that you pay to insure yourself on a, on a bus journey. That's provided by Koala, right? So they just ended up pivoting to this model where they do associate sales. And it's incredible because like, it's a zero friction product. Like as soon as people buy a ticket, they're like, oh, sure. I'll, I'll, yeah. I, I, you need to opt out, right? And so Grab, for example, is moving quite heavily into the space. You have like three or four companies in the region that are trying to just build out an associate sales model, right? Um, which is which is really, really smart if you think about it, right? And then you have this other evolution, which is a lot of guys that end up doing D2C end up just getting agents to become a part of the business. And you wonder why, like why you were competing with agents, now you're getting to this. And this is where you enter fundamental issue number two with insurance, which is insurance providers have been working with agents for the last century and they are afraid to piss off their agents, right? And so as a result, the best products are reserved for these massive structures of agents, like they're almost pyramid structures of agents that are able to effectively execute and sell. So why do you hurt a distribution channel that works effectively? Um, by by you know suddenly killing them off because there's no real added benefits and if you think about insurance it's a it's a pretty expensive product so you you need that human touch of selling them they've effectively outsourced salesmanship in this very incentivized system that's been working for multiple years right this this assumption that D2C can work is actually really really hard so what does this mean for the industry I think I think you'll find new people like so with CXA like call out to CXA since we just started with them right what they tried to do was a combination of like associate sales and and like uh and d2c right so they went to uh companies and they said what 
how else can we sell group insurance? Because group insurance is commoditized. Everybody knows how to sell group employee insurance, right? So they were like, what if we bundle perks and employee uh, health with um, with insurance, right? Could we give you ways to use the gym, get all kinds of cool perks? And it was a pretty interesting business model. The problem is at some point, price becomes competitive and nobody wants to pay the additional to get all these cool perks, right? So it's a pretty tough business model. And 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 it arguably isn't as innovative. Like you're not really cheapening things. So the problem is like if you're not making it cheaper, can you really succeed? Super tough because at the end of the day, what people really care about insurance is is it cheap enough? Um, so like what do I think is going to happen next five years? You're going to have more and more of these uh, of these insurance players that are right now doing their own thing, um, start to integrate deeper, right? So Pasapolis, for example, is integrating deeper into Gojek. I think Gojek in, uh, invested in them, and now they're pretty much the sole provider of, yeah. of insurance on, to all of the customers on Gojek's platform. So it's Gojek's big insurance play. Uh, GFG is doing their own internal insurance thing, and they'll possibly have a couple of M&As and acquisitions. So I expect some of the Southeast Asian startups to get acquired by these big players. But the second piece is I think product innovation is going to pick up. So like Alex is invested in a company that's kind of, you know, creating a whole new segment, pets, because no one cared about yeah. this in the past. Like insurers were like, yeah, it's big, but, uh, you know, not bothered. So if somebody's willing to take on that risk, they just need to create the internal actuary table and then sell the product, right? The problem is distribution is not defensible and the margins are nowhere as close as good, right? Uh, if you're actually doing insurance, that's where the margins really are at. And so at the end of the day, the big, insurers are the ones that win and the reinsurers behind them right i don't know if the startups are really winning so yeah, much correct. uh but yeah, yeah that was a big spiel for me so let's let's hear from you yeah. guys yeah i mean the, the, the holy grail is to get a, a license eventually you know that that's that's i think what people will be looking at too if you want a, a real yeah for, but that risk is rough huh? yeah. if you talk to the if you talk to the insurers uh in a region and everybody will tell you that uh, that that eventually they want to do life right i mean um general insurance is is competitive i mean Motor insurance, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera, eventually, you will you will become raised to the bottom very very quickly. But if you do life insurance, um, first, I mean, the, the premiums are high, so which means that also things you can do with that money. And second is that people are locked in for for a very long time. So, um, so 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 I think I think what Andrew mentioned about agents, right? I mean, agents function very well in life insurance, function very very well in large corporate and business insurance. Mm -hmm. So. Uh, because because these products are com complex, and it's very difficult for people to just um, do a self discovery and uh, make a purchase decision without somebody explaining to them how it works, right? Um, so I, I do know a few life insurance companies trying to go direct, and um, the, the uptake is always very very low because uh, because people just don't understand the product, and of course partially it's because yeah. um, because the, the the marketing folks and the product folks at the insurance companies are trained to make the products safe to explain, which means difficult to for people to understand. Um, yeah. Your point about a pasta police, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera, um, I think, I, I think, I think this is in line with what I mentioned about part of the ecosystem, right? I mean, you have you have the marketplaces, which which try to eventually become a a a, a manufacturer themselves, but you also have the have the companies which are affiliated to a large ecosystem, which they can sell uh, what you call uh, associated um, uh, 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 policies. So, 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 so essentially, if you, if you get yourself um, plugged into a ecosystem I mean, with Grab, with with Gojek, with um, with Shopee, for example, I mean, there's a lot of insurance policies you can sell. 
my uh, little issue with that is the is I mean of course I mean for company to grow no problem but eventually uh, you will become like like JNT or or, or I mean the, the companies which serve the large platforms that I mean what's how much how much margin you can capture yeah. by doing things which are specific by doing things which you have to depend on, on other people's um, other people's traffic so 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 if the platforms become dominant um, I mean you can survive and you can probably make good money but uh, but your lifeline line would be dependent on a platform so so it's so really it's mm. up to you how how you can make yourself sort of more relevant in the future um, as for marketplaces um, uh, I think pure marketplaces you have seen lots of examples of them trying to um, just aggregate demand um, for, for for insurance and other financial products. Um, in Southeast Asia, I mean Singapore, you have you have few failures I and mean, people can't get, just can't get the economics to work. But what 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 I've seen in China is that uh, I mean they will eventually face a, a, a difficult time because um, because as the market becomes more competitive, the customer acquisition cost would go up. And precisely as Andrew said, right, nobody would actually go and uh, and actively look for. For insurance, nobody would like you no know, have app insurance and check their policies every day. So, mm -hmm. so, 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 how do you acquire customers and retain the customers when, uh, when, the, when the cost um, of acquisition uh, keeps keeps going high? So, I think one company might have cracked that, but I think the capital market doesn't really believe that yet. Uh, is is company called Shredi or Waterdrop, which is US listed. So this company started with a very interesting model. I mean, there's uh, there's a comparable called Kitabisa, but uh, but I think the mentality is very different uh, in Indonesia. But what this company did is uh, it started as um, as a crowdfunding platform. So if they if they say that okay, I know someone who is seriously ill and he's not adequately insured, um, I would go and share on WeChat saying that hey, uh, I, this person needs help. Uh, I, I can watch for this person. Whoever who wants to chip in five yuan, ten yuan, please go ahead. So, so that is a way of allowing them to acquire lots of customers basically at zero cost. Mm. But that's also thanks to the to the WeChat platform, which allows you to publicize as well as uh, as well as to collect payment. So, mm. so that's the first stage they did. The second stage is um, is they are telling all these users which they have recently acquired, saying that hey. Do you want to put five yuan in a pool so that I mean, if somebody gets sick uh, from, from from all these policyholders, uh, not policyholders because they they were not uh, an insurer yet, but if anybody gets sick and uh, and we can we can dispense this money, so that that becomes mutual insurance basically, and that that model which has been ex existing in one form or another in all the traditional societies for a long time. Um, so so yeah, that allowed them to 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 convert many of these like you know casual users into you know sort of um, uh, captured users, and the and then the next step is that they are trying to upsell these guys um, policies from insurance companies, and and even afterwards they are I think now they have insurance license themselves, but um, but I think the team has uh, has been sort of thinking about I mean when the customer acquisition cost goes up, how do they make this um, business model sustainable. Uh, I have a friend who just did a tour in China to talk to all the insurer tech companies. She represents an insurance company, and uh, and 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 she was amazed at how Waterdrop um, sort of um, delineate. I mean, so, sort of compartmentalize different user groups and try to upsell them different things. Um, 
Mm. And, and she said they have built this techno technological sophistication, uh, this this way of analyzing data and uh, and segmenting customers that no other marketplaces have done. So so yep. theoretically they can keep this advantage. It's like one year, one and a half year advantage of others who can acquire customers cheap. So mm. so that might make them more sustainable. But 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 also of course because they they now have a insurance license, which means that they can do the manufacturing work. So, so it's still interesting dynamics, and probably something um, that uh, that some of the insure tech companies, uh, especially the marketplaces here, can think about and uh, maybe learn from. Yeah, I mean that that just goes back to my first three points, right? Looking at the customers and innovating, and I think it's just applying startup principles and better data, better technology, which hasn't been done, and then cracking distribution. So, um, fi final comment, Dave. Do you have to go now, or? No, I can do, I have some comments, but it's kind of related to buy now, pay later. So maybe we just move on to that. Okay. I'll do okay. that and I'll, I'll we'll, we'll move to buy now, pay later because Dave has to, to rush off. He actually has real work to do. He's acquiring a movie studio. So <laughs> more lies, <laughs> all lies, Alex. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So buy now, pay later. Three days ago, MasterCard launched a buy now, pay later feature. Uh, they seem to be a little late in the game. Uh, you know, things are really heating up uh, on, that, on that side of the world. Uh, Amazon backs an Indian company called Capital Float, invested 50 million, which is also a buy now, pay later. Uh, they've acquired 2.5 million users, which is Forex growth in the past 12 months. Uh, I have personally taken calls from a Bolts bracket bank looking to use their financial infrastructure and balance sheet to fund these types of user-based opportunities. Uh, so the, the, it's it's a really interesting space to be in. Everyone's looking ways to monetize these user bases. Um, how is this unfolding for Southeast Asia? Dave, why don't you start since you... No, it was Alex. It was Alex. Yeah, I think the problem was Alex. Oh, okay. I thought it was me. Maybe, maybe you should check. You should I'll check ask. if my partner is in your house, Alex. Yeah. Amy, <laughs> Amy, get out. <laughs> uh, okay, but I said I don't know. What did you guys miss? What Everything. Guys miss? Everything. <laughs> no, I think we got most. I, think I, we got I most. heard my yeah, pay later. Okay. Okay. Well, I now pay now. Yeah. So essentially, I now pay now. <laughs> that's a great alternative that's a new innovation my new process is buy now that should be now. your next startup <laughs> okay the, the the crux the crux of it the crux of it is these old institutional players these monopolies are getting into it right and then we have these newer players from silicon valley who are kind of displacing monopolies right so uh you know what is your take on how this unfolds for southeast asia you know it, it, where what is in what direction does this go is this a feature in a payment stack is this could be companies in themselves that become financial institutions themselves or how, what does this look like so i have a yeah i have a couple of thoughts about this i mean i think there's I mean, as, as everyone knows, like buy now, pay later is by no means a new innovation. This has been around since like 2005 or, or something, right? And actually, it's interesting to talk about that. Did you notice that Stripe acquired Afterpay earlier this year? They, they spent like, I think like 35, 30 35. billion US dollars to, to yeah, to, to acquire Afterpay. Um, and then basically the market cap increased by 35 billion US dollars that same day. That synergies right there. <laughs> they, so, liked, they liked it. The markets liked it. Yeah, yeah. So I, I think, but that's, so I think that's like a really um, indicative uh, event, right? We kind of joke about it, but but seriously, right? Like that made something. Essentially, what the market is saying that the sum of uh, the parts are greater than the components uh, individually, right? And that's sort of like my my stance on buy now, pay later in in the region is that these are essentially it, it, these are features. Then, I mean, if you think about these businesses, right, they're, they're not really innovative in terms of the technology. They're easily replicable. 
Um, and in the region where we're talking about e-commerce, e-commerce is actually fairly consolidated, not fairly, but it's more consolidated here than it would be in a market in the West, right? We have a couple of big players in each market. You have your Shopee, you have your Lazada, you have your Bukalapak, and you have your, I mean, uh, like, like Goda, if we're talking about travel, if we're talking about like the non-physical item related verticals, right? So essentially what you're saying, what we're talking about is like the way that these uh, businesses acquire customers is sort of to John Gon's previous point, it's basically off the back of other people's traffic, right? So you can only grow a business so much in that uh, framework. Um, how this like relates to sort of like the, the fintech stack in general, I think is actually, I had, I had a thought is like, if you think about sort of like consumer financial products, right? There's really kind of like four categorizations that you can put these into. There's uh, banking, uh, there's lending, there's insurance, which we just talked about, and then there's trading, right? And um, if you sort of rank these things in terms of like, uh, which ones have the highest retention, banking's at the top, right? You like almost never switch your bank unless you move to a different country. You move to you, your kid, you'll put a bank account, you keep your bank account forever. And then if you sort of like move down the stack, I think the one that probably is changed most often is probably either going to be trading or insurance, right? Those sort of have the lowest retention. But on the flip side of that, if you look at these financial services in terms of like a profit perspective, banking has the lowest profit. I mean, banking, like an actual banking service, the bank makes almost no money on. They get you on other things, right? Uh, on the flip side of that, if you look at the financial services that have the most profit, it's going to be probably trading or insurance, right? So to me, what this sort of says is there's an angle where you could essentially have um, uh, not commoditization, I'm going so far, aggregation in the fintech stack. So it's what's similar to what's happening in media, right? So basically, you pick a, a vector in which you want to approach consumer um, financial uh, products. Usually, banking is probably the most popular one that I've seen where people offer free bank accounts, uh, online bank accounts to these challenger banks, and then they layer on top of that the more profitable um, uh, products. So your insurance, your trading, uh, and your lending. Right. And so that sort of kind of goes back into sort of what we're talking about here or sort of the, the framework or nature of our conversations over the last couple of months is like we have all these big tech companies that have raised huge quantities of capital and venture capital. And how do we deploy them? Right. I think they're all taking different approaches. And this is probably in my the more I understand about it, the more I think about it. This is probably their end goal. They want to commoditize the entire fintech stack and they're all just choosing their most uh, relevant or easily uh, picked vector to get in. Andrew? No, Jangan, go for it. You're, I see that you're writing vigorously, Jangan. I want to hear everything you. Yeah, you're I'm writing time. vigorously. Um, uh, first, we 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 are going to launch a a report about new bank experiences. Uh, I, I can send send you guys a copy before before it's, it's going public. I, I, so uh, I, exactly in line with what they what they've said, right? I mean, you you basically build a basic product, identify a niche, and uh, and you provide a I don't know, a good product, which includes customer experience, et cetera, et cetera. And you, you accumulate customers very quickly. Then you try to, to upsell them into something uh, more lucrative or more profitable or sort of, a, I mean, that helps you with customer retention as well. Um, so, so so that's the first point that, uh, that I want to make, which is not really buy now, pay later. But, uh, but I think buy now, pay later per se. I, I was um, expecting you to say you're launching a buy now, pay later for your subscription model. <laughs> no, it's a buy now, pay now model. <laughs> buy now, pay now for this report. Uh, I might launch the prepaid model, which, which, which uh, from cash flow point of view is probably even better. But, uh, 
but 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 very interesting. So um, between 2017 to 2019, one of the ventures we did. Uh, we did in Indonesia was uh, was a fintech venture, and uh, one of the shareholders was the first um, uh, product director of Huawei, which is the essentially the binary pilot product of uh, of Ant. So, so over the course of two years, we learned a lot from him and his and his team about about how this works. Um, uh, I, I think it essentially still goes back to the, to the same point, right? You 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 build that off the back of a, of logical system. That's what allows you to have. The richness of data for you to uh, not necessarily—I mean, not necessarily for you to to credit score or whatever—but but have richness of data which should allow you to adjust the model to reach the optimal point where you balance profitability as, as well as growth. Um, coming back to binary pilot in Southeast Asia, I mean, it's it's getting hot probably because um, global investors are, are very keen on that. I mean, all, all the stories with our firm, with Afterpay, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Um, but but companies have been trying to build binary pilot products in the region for a while. I mean, if you look at Indonesia, Credivo and Akulaku started about the same time. Hello. Why does he have your dog? She, <laughs> never, she didn't come home last night. She's a terrible child. Oh, I I thought it was a lamb. Oh, ooh, yeah, yeah, she does. It's a bitty bitty. It looked like a lamb. Just I, am, I am Goreng. Yeah. Say hi to Alex. Look, dude, it's Alex. It's your It's your other dad. Okay. Oh no! I, sorry. I have headphones on. Sorry. Sorry. Continue, Jagan. Yeah, sorry, Jagan. Hey, no worries. Um, so, so if you, if you think about Akulaku and uh, and Credivo, they started doing binary pilator a long time ago, and uh, and of course, some people are arguing that wait, this is the same as credit card installment, but it's it's not the same as credit card installment, um, because um, because you, you are you are creating something which which targets very sometimes very very small ticket items. And uh, and you are targeting the, the the masses of the market, and your credit credit assessment and your 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 appro approval speed, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera, everything is super different. So, so so from from a uh, from 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 probably money flow point of view, it's very similar. But from uh, the 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 mentality of the business point of view, uh, is is quite different. So this company started in 2016, 2017. And initially, uh, uh, I think everybody wanted to do that uh, off the back of e-commerce rise, right? I mean, I, I think Creative in the very beginning plugged into a number of e-commerce platforms, and Akulaku went to a different route because uh, because they realized that was too slow. Um, so so they went to create their own e-commerce platform, and they were selling phones using their own sort of binary pilot products, and cash installment, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So. So uh, fast forward uh, a few years, and uh, and these companies are all trying to become um, financial ecosystems. I mean, they're going to uh, cash lending, they're going into insurance, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, and then they used to the whole explosion of binary pilot in the region, right? Advanced AI, uh, sorry, Advanced Intelligence Group, which owns Advanced AI, as well as Credit Pintar, as well as Atomi, which is the binary pilot bet, has just raised, I think, $400, $400 million at a valuation of $2 billion. Mm -hmm. Uh, etc. etc. And uh, and in Singapore, you do have uh, have a few few a few players being created. Um, the interesting part is that if you look at Singapore, Australia, and all the all all, all the sort of mature markets, um, the dynamics are very different compared to markets like Indonesia, for example. Market markets like Thailand. Um, in, in mature markets, I mean, first, I mean, as they've said, 
you don't have the dominance of of uh, of, of large platforms. I mean, that's that's a strong uh, and big long tail. So so theoret theoretically, you can pick up lots of lots of merchants, lots of lots of Shopify stores, and uh, and lots of lots of offline chains and make a viable business. This is relatively harder in emerging markets. Um, because I mean, all these guys try to do it, do, it, do it on their own, and also the e-commerce platforms have um, uh, probably disproportionate uh, power in the whole ecosystem. So, so, so at the end of the day, um, how, how, how would this exactly work out? Um, I, I, I do think that uh, that it's a game that's not 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 super hard to play. And as long as people get their mind around it, I mean, even for the banks, I mean, I know some of the banks have been trying to explore that. Um, it's not that they don't understand the product. It's not that they don't understand uh, the mechanics behind it. It's not that they can't find the people to run it. It's how to get their, I mean, various teams uh, around it to, to, to see that, okay, whether this is a product that from risk point of view, uh, they're comfortable with it because their cost structure is different. Um, but... But I, I think with uh, with companies like Grab, companies like uh, like Gojek, Tokopedia, I mean especially e-commerce companies, Shopee, etc., when they go into buy now pay later, um, it's 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 quite likely that the, the other products that's uh, that's based on on their system will be I wouldn't say marginalized, but uh, but they will try to keep the most lucrative segments to themselves and um, and, and transfer the risk to to other players as much as possible. They're not there yet. Um, I've spoken with people uh, who have, I mean, from different platforms who have been uh, using Uncredible. I and mean, everybody tries to, I mean, or wants to cut them off, but everybody can't because because um, they, they said for whatever reason, Credivo's customers are just uh, just very loyal. So if we if, if we cut them now, we lose these customers. But mm. it doesn't mean that they're not trying. And eventually, this will become some dynamics that uh, I think Creative will, and the likes of that will try very, very hard to, to build themselves into uh, a fully functional financial ecosystem so that they can better retain the customers. I just want to add a, a quick point to, to what you said, mm. Jungkook, because I think it's, it's super interesting, right? I think you're right. I think all the big players are going to try and roll out. Uh, this feature on their own at a certain point. And I think uh, actually a really good indicator of who is going to be uh, the leader or the dominant player is the one that does it most successfully, right? Because there's, there's like this famous like um, adage or heuristic where basically the markets reward companies that can take cost centers and turn them into revenue centers or into profit centers, mm -hmm. right? And those are going to be the ultimate winners or the long-term winners um, in this game. So I, I think whoever can pull that trick out first and do it most consistently that's the guys that you should be betting on or we should be betting on whoever wants to bet what's on what's the cost center in this reference like it's a revenue center no like why why would you need to flip it your payments infrastructure no because find out pay cost. later your payment costs right yes. because find out pay later you so how i mean how it works is the the merchant actually pays a percentage of the transaction fee to the buy now pay later company because theoretically the buy now pay later guys right. are bringing you more customers so it depends on the platform but it's somewhere between like Correct. four to five percent and then obviously these companies also make money if you yeah. as a customer don't pay and then you get hit with interest charges but the majority of the money comes from merchant fees correct yeah. 
Correct. So when you say flipping the cost, you mean the merchant flipping the cost into a revenue center? Yeah. So if I'm like, if I'm like Lazada, right? And I have, uh, sorry, go ahead. Yeah. yeah. I mean, uh, sorry. Uh, I think you just said if I'm Lazada, Lazada is the merchant. But anyway, so. Yeah. If I'm yeah. Lazada, Lazada is the merchant. So if, I, if I'm using a third party buy now, pay later, that's my cost center because I'm paying 5% commission to wh whoever that is, right? But if I develop my own. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. I, I'll, I'll tell you though. So internally internally like uh, okay like the lazada uh, the buy now pay later is sexy but the problem is there is a certain amount of risk associated with it right so that's why you know shopee for example has launched shopee pay which is like one of the fastest growing products but i can tell you there was a big internal debate whether to do this or not for the longest time the biggest player in southeast asia was finex sales credivo um and credivo basically undertook a lot of that risk which meant uh most e-commerce players didn't want to get into this space. This space really heated up for two reasons, right? One is, one is, so most credit cards already provide some kind of 0% installment plan. And actually, that works quite well for high-ticket mm -hmm. items. So, yeah. you know, in Malaysia, for example, we work together with three banks to get 0% installments onto Lazada. Uh, and they, like, we negotiated to have up to 36 months of installment, which is mm. freaking incredible if you think about it, right? So if you buy, a, I don't know, a a TV that costs, you know, six hundred dollars, two thousand ringgit. You can divide that into thirty-six payments of less than fifty dollars each, right? Uh, no, less than what twelve dollars yeah. each, right? So it's pretty incredible that you can take a, a big ticket item. The problem is, like, um, you know, with these kinds of like twenty-four month, thirty-six months, typically what retailers do is instead of zero percent EPP, you try to split that uh, percentage that you pay to the bank, uh, which has some element of risk underwritten into it between the consumer and the merchant. So the merchant is willing to pay because I otherwise would not yep. sell to that customer. Uh, and then the customer is willing to pay because he otherwise wouldn't be able to divide those payments into the that many installments, right? So that's that market has existed for a long time. The revel the, the, there's two issues here. Number one is that market exists for people who have credit cards, right? And typically in Southeast Asia, it's people who earn more than a thousand USD mm -hmm. uh, per yeah. month, yeah. depending on the market, which is a pretty high barrier because most people don't have that kind of money, right? Which means, in effect, most people who earn below that just you know yeah. what we call the underbanked or the under credit served just don't have any access to some kind of credit product right bnpl um so so bnpl from a very global standpoint is able to basically tackle um 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 this group of customers globally right so klana afterpay are tackling people who may have credit cards but also just wouldn't mind having like two three simple easy payments um and and actually most if you look at the numbers most people who who use these services end up not paying late fees at all because they end up paying on time so in that sense it's like it's a it's a weird model right but merchants love it because you're getting more customers and customers now can divide a 300 pound purchase into three small four small uh uh, payments of less than 100 pounds each so it psychologically becomes lower personally i hate this this whole space right for for two reasons i think it's a great business model but it just encourages rampant consumerism <laughs> yeah. right so as a, as a hippie who likes spending time in the jungle now i hate the idea that you take you know already small ticket items you make them even smaller tickets so that people buy more useless like what's that what's that line from fight club advertising has people working jobs they hate to buy shit they don't yep. need right and so BNPL is just a, another gear in that in that uh, system that makes people just buy more stuff that they don't really need, right? Um, now, if you could use it for for the the problem is and it's and it's really like like if you look at Klan and Afterpay, it's like a hundred pounds. That's like their their typical price range. So these aren't even big ticket items, 
right? They're very small ticket items that people just divide into three payments because instead of buying one thing in March, now I get to buy five things because I can use Afterpay or Klarna, right? Uh, and so they end up just buying five things every month and just racking on debt. What I don't like about this second thing is it actually normalizes debt. A lot of people who actually shouldn't be getting debt because, you know, they couldn't get good credit scores or they're just not used to paying debt. Like, think of your 18-year-old kid, right? You want to buy all kinds of things. You're a sneakerhead. You love sneakers. Now you end up buying five sneakers, right? And and the problem is once you miss late payments uh, on any of these apps, it actually does affect your credit score. So you may be making silly decisions at 19 that affect you when you're 29 and trying to buy a house or buy a car, right? Um, so I do think like, I'm not sure about buy now, pay later's benefit to society because it doesn't seem to to be affecting like people buying things that actually have some kind of positive utility. I'm not sure where China stands on this, Jiang, and I'd love to hear whether this also fits within Xi Jinping's uh, spiritual opium or it's a different kind of opium. Uh, but but the point is like, I you know, this thing, the, the business is great. You're going to make a ton of money doing it no matter how you cut it, right? Whether or not you charge late fees. Uh, uh, yeah, but buy, I don't think it's a great business. Buy, buy now, pay later promotes rampant consumerism, says the guy who built out one of Southeast Asia's largest e-commerce platforms. <laughs> and then left when he when he decided he was, you know, had enough of building yeah. consumerism. Now he spends his time in the forest. Okay. Sorry, Jang, go ahead. That's right. Um, I, I, I don't know. I mean, if, if, um, if, if some product which makes it easier for people to buy things, um, I, I I don't think that uh, that that is, it should be up to the capital to, to rein themselves. I mean, it's, it's up to the regulators to to say that okay, where's the boundary, right? Because um, I mean, it's it's very very hard for for industry to self-regulate without some clear rules, and uh, and especially um, especially when you have competition. So so when you self-regulate yourself, I mean, the other parties will race ahead. So 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 that's a problem. Um, by no pellet specific per se, what I learned is that I mean the Huawei product of uh, of um, of Ant and uh, is actually one of the reasons what that got she really pissed off last year because they said okay young people are taking too much debt, but the mm. truth is um, Alibaba does I mean, sorry Ant Group does not really make money from Huawei and uh, and I've seen the numbers is is largely breaking even. But but what's interesting is that uh, I mean precisely as um, as Dave said that I mean if you pay late. And you have a have a penalty, right? So they have translated this penalty into another yeah. product called JB. So say that if if I can't pay back my my credit on time, they will offer you a loan. I mean, this is this is the same as uh, as the bank's credit card refinancing. <laughs> what? This is, this so, is predatory what? lending. No, no, this is no. What this is. What? <laughs> instead of, I mean, banks will tell you that instead of paying twenty six percent interest on your credit card, how about I offer you an installment loan, which only charges you eleven percent. That's that's oh much God, much much. It's crazy. That's that's much easier to sell than 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 than, than calling you in the first place to offer you a seven seven percent mm -hmm. loan for money you don't need, right? But money but anyway, so that yeah, that's something which really pissed uh, pissed uh, the government off. Um, and especially they look at the the the, the debt ratio of young people. Uh, but mm -hmm. that also translates into a problem is that how should regulators deal with it, right? Because you can't rely on the industry to regulate themselves, and um, especially in a competitive environment. So, so, so for a long time, Singapore has this um, this rule uh, that first, I mean, for any lending product, any credit credit card product from the banks and financial institutions, you have to declare the effective interest rate, not the headline interest rate. Yeah. Yeah. The second thing is that I mean, mm. people people's unsecured credit 
is capped as at uh, I think two months of your monthly income. Uh, mm. The curious thing is that buy now, pay later, because uh, the classification is not exactly clear to the regulators, and is not part of this. So, so theoretically, people can, you know, practically, people can take up debt beyond their limit. Yeah. So, so I mean, a young fresh graduate earning like three thousand dollars a month, and uh, and when they get a credit card, and they have credit limit of six thousand dollars, right? But if different people are providing the, the same person the buy now pilot products, and uh, he or she can ramp that up to, that up to like ten thousand even even above with 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 with, with no um, regulatory oversight, and uh, and in that regard, I think the regulators are acting a little bit uh, slowly on that because that's the business model. It's not hard to understand, and the consequences and implications are are, are very easy to model out. So I do think they should act fast on that to to sort of rein the problems that uh, that 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 Andrew has anticipated. Um, but still, at the end of the day, it's, uh, it's a great product. I mean, it allows you to buy things that uh, that you would otherwise uh, uh, think twice about. I mean, maybe there, there are some things yeah. that you actually do need. Yeah, sure, sure. Just yeah. just two quick comments here, right? So number one is I I don't believe people are like okay. So I'm I'm definitely making a value judgment here in terms of what you can buy. But at lower AOVs, like at lower average order values, people are just buying like fashion and cosmetics that that's like really like the main product segments that are growing with bnpl right these products are not helping people access higher price point items that they wouldn't otherwise access so this isn't like a product that's helping you know a poor family buy a fridge that's not what's going on right it's really people who want to buy gucci sweaters but couldn't afford it before mm. are buying gucci sweaters and if you compound it even worse you know like another big track have trend happening in fintech is earned wage access which is like earning your money before the yeah. the end of the month so that you can take that money out if you combine earned wage access and bnpl you're just telling people like <laughs> don't keep your money give it leverage, to the big leverage. guy leverage so that you just you know like live a great life wear your gucci sweaters at 18 right and that, this is what i don't like right this this isn't helping people access a thousand pounds of you know products that they couldn't otherwise all, uh, afford. Right? All, so this all fueled like by TikTok and social media. Yeah. All fueled by TikTok and social media. This is the worst part, right? It get, gets connected to like more of that shitty advertising. So it's a syndicate, uh, and you I need to you need to look anyway, at which so, part of the syndicate you want to crack down. It's a it's a freaking yeah. cart. It's yeah. a syndicate. You're yeah. absolutely right, and not the good kind. Uh, so okay, so this is like uh, you know, comment number one. Comment number two is actually this thing. So these guys are actually quite concerned about their perception of being predatory lenders, and some of them are making like extreme uh, 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 attempts to distance themselves from predatory lenders. Klarna charges famously no late fees, which is weird, right? Because that's arguably how you would make money yeah. from this, right? Yeah, but they're like they're willing to just like stick it as a payment service provider and kill other payments. Uh, Not payment a growth strategy, provider. Right? But then, yeah. it's a growth strategy, and it also helps. You know, it, it helps merchants uh, be friendlier with merchants, and on the other side, it helps them. You know, eat into payment share and therefore become mm -hmm. as big as they did, right? And a lot of others, you know, Layby, uh, PayPal, actually cap has a, has a maximum cap on late fees, so you actually can't exceed. I think in the US, like for for PayPal, it's like twenty four dollars or something like this. Like, so it's it's not like a large amount. Because also the AOVs are small, right? Um, so that's, I think, a pretty smart move. But the problem is, like, like it does affect credit scores. It does affect, like, uh, it normalizes mm. debt. It does affect this idea that you should be able to buy whatever you want, yeah. even if you can't afford it, even if you don't have the money for it. So take out your pay earlier with the earned wage access that we now have given you, and then use that with BNPL to buy 15 different things this month. And, oh, what, you don't have money to pay rent? Sorry, that's not our problem, right? And oh, so... Sorry. 
Well, no, I mean, like, I, I get your, I get your point, Andrew. But I yeah, mean, is that is that the job of the company, or is that the job of like your parents to teach you financial <laughs> judgment? I mean, come on, like, we, this, we, we don't live in a nanny state, right? Like, you can't. This, you this can't is the expect... McDonald's argument. This is the McDonald's. No, <laughs> we but sell is... what people Dude, want. No, no, you sell, like, you, sell, you know what? I, I, I disagree. Most people free choice. Give people free choice, right? Dude, like a free market. I, I know we got some hardcore libertarians in here. Like, I, I love, I love rights, but at the end of the day regulations are important to ensure that people don't get yourself fucked. Once you get yourself deep in debt, it's hard to get out of it and it's hard to then access other things in life. Debt is a huge issue, right? Most of us here, we're privileged enough to not have the kind of debt issues that most people do. But a lot of kids get into it and then it's hard to get out of it. And I sympathize with them, but these kinds of products loop them in and get them into buying things that they shouldn't be fucking buying. I mean, look, I think we have different opinions on this. I also think that sometimes painful lessons are the best lessons because once you've learned them you're like oh i remember that time when i couldn't buy that car that i wanted because i bought a bunch of Gucci sweaters and now maybe i should have better financial management but dave i mean some people just fall into the trap and they can't get out of it and i think there are more people who can't get out of it than people who can actually yeah. reflect and uh, and actually learn from it so well so, so this is what we're dealing with I the think... masses here yeah no no look, look i agree with you but this is what i'm saying. i think yeah to be fair like that's where regulators come in, right? Like you, you have to make things have to be clearly labeled, implications. Like you, you have to, you can't obfuscate, right? You can't, it can't be like cigarettes in the 60s where they said cigarettes don't cause cancer when they actually do cause cancer, right? So I agree with you on this, but I think as long as ultimately as everyone is transparent and we know what we're getting ourselves into, then it's ultimately up to the person's choice of whether or not they want to yeah. live outside their means that's the that's the american way of thinking of things i mean the chinese way is that okay we'll make the choice for you (laughs) we'll make the choice for you no more games no no more than 40 minutes of tiktok whatever so 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 because i know Mm -hmm. that we we know that you can't make decisions for yourselves well actually i probably needed that alex needed that as a kid i probably did too (laughs) he could have got a harvard (laughs) yeah i could have done you know a little bit more of that Uh, life would have been a little bit different don't you don't you wish you had a bit more regulation (laughs) now that you realize what you've done you know so yeah exactly yeah go ahead go ahead go ahead yeah no, no. I was just saying there's an objective function for society that somebody needs to be watching out for. Every individual can be a bit short-term focused sometimes. And sometimes you don't know the things that you don't know yet, right? When you're 18, you make a lot of stupid decisions. I made a ton of stupid decisions when I was 18. And so I, I, like, I wish like there were people who would just like, watch out for individuals sometimes to help them get them into a better space. Yeah. Uh, quickly, I... I... I think a few years ago, people were sort of bullish about lending, P2P, et cetera, right? I mean, and that, that fell out of favor because of two things. I mean, first, people perceived that uh, uh, the non-performing loan, the NPO ratio, is higher than what these founders uh, pitched. And, the, and and also, it's more prone to, to fraud. And second is that, I mean, there's lots of regulatory issues with this uh, perceived as uh, as predatory. And then I, th- I think China has completely shut P2P. So by now, pay there is uh, is alternative uh, where it's perceived to be safer because because you have you actually have goods being bought against I mean the loans that you are giving out. And second is that, from uh, from 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 regulatory point of view, um, it's um, it's safer, right? I mean because because you are essentially facilitating f- credit for people to buy things instead of just giving people cash. But um, but for, but but on the first point, um, I. I I think I think the experience from 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 France in China over the last few years is that uh, essentially if you have a logical system you have lots of data points whether you are taking cash loan or whether you are actually buying things uh, in um, and, and take loan on that thing and uh, it doesn't really matter I mean at the end of the day the the, the sort of uh, um, the, the the NPO ratio whatever is very similar 
Uh, it, it depends on how much they know about you rather than what you buy. And the second is that uh, there are regulatory issues, but and, and I think that would last for a while because I don't see the regulators, I mean, figuring out how to do that. Okay, well, okay. Let's, uh, we'll end here. Okay. Good episode, guys. Good, Good talk. luck buying the company, right. guys. Yeah, I'm off to buy the studio now. But it's yeah. buy now, yeah, pay bye. now. I can't All do right. buy now, pay later for movie studio. Buy now, pay now. <laughs> right. Bye, guys. Good bye. episode. Bye, guys. Say bye, Jude. Bye, bye Jude. Hey, I just read a series of blogs from a Chinese blogger about uh, sort of power and revolution, and uh, mm -hmm. and, and very funny that his um, his entire thought is based on the fact that uh, I mean, whoever those who succeeded in revolution are not the, the, the ones with ideas, with publicity, and with great support, but the, always the ones with um, great organizational skills. Say, say again, great. Organizational, organizational skills. Skill. I mean, able to m mobilize lots of people, and um, yeah, and basically, basically overthrew the old system. So, 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 so then, then if you look at uh, when Mussolini was in power, he was cracking down the um, uh, the mafia, and uh, and yeah. and when the Chinese communists were, were, were basically cracking down religions, um, I think it's for the same reason because they fear uh, an alternative force. Which has great organizational mm -hmm. skills, and even greater than, yeah. than theirs, probably. Yeah. So I was talking to my Polish intern. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, go ahead. Go ahead. No, no, I, no, no. I, I was talking to my Polish intern yesterday, and uh, we, we sort of went to discuss about and why communism failed in in, in, Pol in Poland, Eastern Europe, as a whole. Mm -hmm. And she said it was because people got too much power. But I said, and the communists always had too much power. Like over yeah, fifty years, exactly. and um, and the previous attempts, like fifty six, sixty something, and it, and even I think nineteen eighty, there was something like hungry or some whatever. It was all cracked down, but it's only like eighty nine, ninety, when the Soviets stopped caring. You know, when the cadres in the Soviet Communist Party stopped caring, they only care about themselves. I mean, mm. the the best, yeah, the the best couldn't organize a just... camp to to put down Yeltsin, for for example. Mm. I mean, it's just it's just power. It's all it is, right? Yeah, it's 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 how you organize like a source to to seize power. Yeah, it's well, they're 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 essentially the the real barbarians. You know? Yep, yep, yep. <laughs> and and then the guy went to talk about the U.S. and and saying that why why democracy could take roots in the U.S. and and he said it's because um because the country started with the armed merchants. And, uh, and yeah, landowners. That makes sense. So, so, so yeah. basically, basically, yeah, initially, yeah, yeah. You, you, I mean, I mean, to reach consensus, you basically have to sit down and talk because otherwise, I mean, if you, if you try to if you try to take over power, they will resist. Yeah, it's not the same case in most most places in Asia. Yeah, the civilizations were very well established for for long times. Very different so, dynamic. Yeah, so people are obedient. But, but, I, I guess the land ownership probably piece was missing, but the the merchant merchant trade was was a huge aspect in Southeast Asia. But merchants in Southeast Asia didn't have firepower. 
they had military I mean, power re relative to the region, right? Uh, only the East, East Indian Company had like significant military power, but otherwise, well, the merchants... okay, if you're talking about more more modern technological, yes. But there there have been mm. prior civilizations that were way well more advanced than like the the you know London or the tiny Roman cities when they first started, right? It was, there was like like Bagan was like had a million people when London had thirty thousand people, right? So I mean, but it's, it's yeah, just... but 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 the people who really held the power were the kings and high priests, not merchants. Yeah. Not yeah, yeah, correct, correct, correct. yeah, yeah, exactly, yeah, 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 exactly, yeah. yeah.